All right, good morning, Watermark. My name is Adam Tarno. Excited to be with you guys here this morning. Start off with a question, how many baseball fans we have out there right now? All right, that's good. How many Ranger fans? All right, all right. You guys are about the middle of the road, all right? Some of the other services had more, but that's okay. I'm a huge Ranger fan, uh, baseball fan. We're like, it's just huge in our family right now. We watch a lot of baseball. I've got two young boys. We play a lot of baseball. We're trying to knock out all the ballparks. We're gonna hit our fifth ballpark uh, later next month. And uh, so baseball is a big deal in our house. And we've been following the Rangers for a while. Since I moved here about 15 years ago, I've become a diehard Rangers fan. And there's just a couple of things that I've noticed about my life and being a Rangers fan that I wanted to share with you guys to set up where we're gonna go. First thing that I've noticed is that I uh, consistently feel this regret that I did not name my kids, my two kids, Adrian and Beltre. <laughs> I think that would have been so cool to do that. I mean, he is just such a joy to watch. If you've never watched Adrian Beltre play baseball, you need to do that. He's probably gonna retire in a few years. He is a treasure. I wanna live my life the way that guy plays baseball with the excellence and joy in which he plays that game with. And so uh, I, I find that, being a Rangers fan, that I have some regret that I named my kids Jake and Josh, not Adrian and Beltre. Another thing that I have uh, noticed is that one of the most significantly or one of the most challenging discipleship opportunities I've had as a young parent was this moment when Odor punched Bautista. Yeah, we can clap. That was pretty awesome. And so I remember that day. It was a Sunday afternoon game playing the Blue Jays. I remember I was outside with my kids. We were playing baseball in the driveway in our backyard kind of area. And we could see, I had the game on inside and we could see through this window what was going on and we're playing and I kind of keep looking in at the score and then I look in and I just see the benches are cleared and I'm like, boys, they're fighting, come on. And so we, we go running inside and we're watching the replay over and over again and my kids are like, why did he do that? Why did he punch him? I'm like, I don't know, but that is amazing. And then, then it hits me where I'm like, oh, but, but violence, violence is not good, okay? So... When you're mad at somebody, you don't punch them at all. And then we're watching the replays, and I'm like, look at those sunglasses, man. They are flying, and the helmet's going over there. And be like, what? Well, so, but again, the way we resolve conflict in this house <laughs> is you ask forgiveness. Odor should have asked Bautista for forgiveness. They should have downloaded the conflict field guide. There's a whole plan there on how they should have resolved that conflict. So that was a big challenge for me. And then this third thing that I've noticed being a Rangers fan is that my heart is growing uh, increasingly more and more cold towards the Houston Astros. <laughs> Don't clap, please, all right? So they're like, I used to not really care or think, you know, I, they were just kind of here or there. When they were in the National League, I just didn't think about them too often. I thought they had cool uniforms back in the 70s and 80s, and I remember Bad News Bears breaking training was at the Astrodome, and I watched that movie 100 times when I was growing up. But now that they moved over to the American League West, and they're now in the same division as the Rangers, which I think is amazing for baseball. I think these rivalries are great. It is so fun to have a rivalry like that, kind of like with American League East, where you got the, the Red Sox and the Yankees. And so I think it's been great for baseball, but my heart is growing more and more cold as the Astros are getting better and better and better. And I'm noticing that I am starting to rejoice more when they lose than when the Rangers win. And so I've had a few sports depressions in my life, and one of the biggest, though, was last fall when the Astros won the World Series. And I was just, no, it was miserable, guys, and I need some empathy. It was just a terrible time, because I was like, ah, they did it first, you know? They, they got their World Series before we did, and so my heart is growing very, very cold towards Astros and all things Astros, and it's really starting to impact my kids now, too. I mean, we wanted to go... Uh, we thought about going out to the Rangers ballpark on July 4th and our kids, they didn't want to go because they were playing the Astros. 
So they didn't want to go to that game because like, I don't want to watch them. And then you know, I'll buy my kids some baseball cards every once in a while. And a couple weeks ago, I bought them cards. And I remember we got home from the card shop and they sat at the kitchen table and they had all their cards out and they were doing some training, uh, trading, excuse me. And then I come back about an hour later and all the cards are off the table except for two. And there's two cards left on the table and they're like folded up and crumpled up and they're sitting there on the middle of the table and I walk through and I'm like, look at the, you know, these kids, they don't, they don't value what I purchased them and they're not being good stewards of this stuff and I pick up the cards and they were two Astros and I was like, God bless them. <laughs> of course you don't keep these cards and I didn't, I didn't even put them in the recycle, I just threw them away, right? Because my heart, it's wicked, it's cold, it's cold towards all of those things. But I wish I could stand up here this morning and tell you that's the only area in my life where my cold heart impacts the way I love. And unfortunately, it's not. Unfortunately, I have some other areas in my life where I have a cold heart too, and it impacts the way I love. And, and this area of my life is this, is that I've noticed that I spend most of my life in a church bubble. Just about everything in my life is within this Christian bubble. I mean, I'm on staff here at Watermark, and so I'm a professional Christian, and I hang out with other professional Christians all day, every day. All of my coworkers are Christians, and I know where all the Christians are in my neighborhood, and we interact on a regular basis, and we know who the Christians are at my kid's school, and we interact with those parents and those kids on a regular basis. We know who the Christians are on sports teams, and it's just like all of my friends are Christian, all of my coworkers are Christian, and I am just in this Christian bubble, and I've been in this bubble for a long period of time, and, and the truth be told, I am really comfortable living in the bubble. It is very easy to be in the bubble. It's easy to love other people in the bubble because by and large, we all value the same thing. We wanna parent the same way. Uh, we believe the same things. And, and yeah, maybe there's some differences every once in a while, but it is way easier, I've found, to love people in the bubble than it is to love people outside of the bubble. And what I've noticed is over the years as I've grown more and more comfortable in the bubble, my heart is growing colder towards those outside of the bubble. And so in the same way that my heart has grown cold and drifted towards Astro's things, I have also drifted and my heart has grown cold towards people who are not in the Christian bubble, towards outsiders. And what it looks like is it looks like this, is I'm not like mean to them and I'm not nice to them or anything like that and I don't wish harm on people who don't live in the bubble, but I'm just really lazy towards them. I don't seek out opportunities to engage with people who are outside the bubble. I'm, I, uh, I don't wanna engage in conversations that are gonna be a little bit awkward. I like to talk to people where we believe the same thing and we can agree with one another. I don't like engaging in conversations where my worldview is different than your worldview and now we're kind of arguing and there's disharmony and there's a little bit of conflict. Those are conversations I don't like and so I just don't wanna engage in those. And so out of my laziness and out of my desire for comfort, I'm not seeking out those conversations. And by and large, where it is where my heart is, is I just have developed this coldness where I just don't even think people really want to change. And if they wanted to change, then they would come inside the bubble. But if they're not coming inside the bubble, then that must mean that they don't want to change and I'll just leave them be. My heart has grown cold. And I start with all that this morning because I don't think I'm the only one who struggles with this. In fact, I've had conversations with a lot of you in this room this morning, and I, I know that I'm not the only one whose heart has grown cold towards outsiders. And that's one of the reasons I am so excited about this series that we started last week. JP kicked us off last week, if you weren't here, in the series called The Outsiders. And what we're gonna do over five weeks, we're gonna be looking at five interactions that Jesus had in the Gospel of Luke with, with outsiders. 
And so JP kicked us off great last week in Luke chapter five, and we're gonna continue in Luke chapter seven today, and we're gonna look at another interaction that Jesus had with outsiders. And I think what I hope to, to have happen as we look at the scripture here this morning is that we are gonna see three things that will hopefully warm up our cold hearts towards outsiders. And the reason why I think this series is so important and the reason why I think today's message is so important is this, is I think a lot of us in the bubble right now, we have grown so comfortable inside the bubble and we're actually bored inside the bubble. I think there's so many of us that are just like me that we're just sitting in here and we've gotten comfortable and we wouldn't tell anybody that we are a little bit bored and we certainly wouldn't put it on our 4B and we wouldn't write it on the perforated section of the Watermark News, hey, I'm bored. But the fact of the matter is this, that there's a lot of us in here that you know exactly how to play the Christian game now. You've been in the bubble long enough, you know how to answer all the questions, you've got the vocabulary, you know how to be in a community group. You know how to confess sin. You know how to talk about your marriage a little bit. You know how to talk about your parenting a little bit. You know how to do all of that. And you look at your life and you're like, hey, my marriage, it's fine. Like it could be a little bit better, but I know it's, you know, it's, it's not as good as it could be, but it's not as bad as some other people that I know of. It's just fine. I know my relationship with my kids. It's, it's just, it's fine. I know it could be better, but it's not that bad. Or my relationship with the other people in my family, it's just fine right now. And you're just fine with everything being fine but you lay your head down at night and you wake up in the morning and you know the truth be told, you're just bored. You're just not excited. There's nothing in you. It's just like, man, I, I, I just, I don't have many of those. I cannot believe that just happened kind of moments following after Jesus. And if that's you, if that's you, if you're in here today and you're bored, I think this message is so important because you need to hear that the boring Christian life is so far from what God wants for you and what he wants for me. Jesus didn't die so you and I could just be in the bubble and be comfortable and be bored. Like Jesus did not go to the cross and die and he was not buried and he didn't raise again so you and I could be bored in the bubble. And if our hearts have grown cold and we're really comfortable just being bored in this little controllable bubble with a bunch of people who think and act just like us, then we need our hearts warmed up. So we're gonna be in Luke chapter seven and hopefully as we go through this, we're gonna see three truths, be reminded of three truths that I hope will warm up our hearts, warm up mine and warm up yours. So here's the scene. There's gonna be three primary people that we're gonna see in this text this morning. You're gonna have Jesus and then you're gonna have this man named Simon. This man named Simon, he is wealthy, he is educated, he is a Pharisee, he is kind of a religious professional, he's a do-gooder, he's kind of a pastor of the day. He's wealthy, he's educated, and, and he is righteous. He does a lot of good deeds. He is, he is an insider. So Simon, this Pharisee, is gonna be there. Jesus is gonna be there. And then there's gonna be this woman that shows up. And all that Luke tells us about this woman is that she is a sinful woman. Simon knows that she's a sinful woman, as we are gonna see. And so it's not too far of a stretch to believe that this woman was most likely a prostitute. And so here's the scene, you've got Jesus, you've got this uh, well-educated, wealthy, righteous do-gooder, and then you've got a prostitute that probably wasn't wealthy, probably not educated. That's the scene, Jesus, the Pharisee, the prostitute, it's like, it sounds like a joke almost, right? Like this is the start of a joke or a really, really good reality TV show or something like that, right? Like we're gonna, we're gonna watch what's gonna happen. This is gonna be an amazing interaction that we're gonna see. And what Luke is doing is he's recording this scene is he's comparing and contrasting the woman and Simon the Pharisee. He's comparing and contrasting them because Simon has a cold heart, but this woman's affections, her heart towards Jesus is very, are, are really warm. 
And he's gonna compare and contrast. And we're gonna see three things in here that we need to be reminded of that will hopefully warm up our hearts to be more like hers. And so if you got your Bibles, here we go. Luke chapter seven. We're gonna be in verses 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume, came with this really expensive perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped his feet with her hair. She kissed them, and she poured the perfume on them. So this woman, it was customary at some of these banquets for outsiders, uninvited guests, to show up. It wasn't completely unusual, so she probably an uninvited guest, showed up here and all she really had access to because of the way they were sitting around this kind of picnic blanket thing, the the men were probably all reclining. The only thing that she really had access to with Jesus was his feet. And she had this private moment with Jesus and she was so overwhelmed and overcome with emotion that she started to cry and her tears were on his feet and she wiped his feet with her hair and she put the perfume on his feet. And this is all going down And Simon is watching this, and now Luke is recording some of the thoughts that Simon the Pharisee had. And look here in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, so when Simon saw that this was going down and that this woman was treating Jesus this way, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, so if he were somebody of God, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is and that she is a sinner. So you can kind of get this picture in your mind. We can kind of uh, understand or kind of imagine what this would be like. And so just imagine for you, if you had your favorite celebrity over for dinner at your house, so maybe it's a sports star or an actor or an author or a politician or somebody like that, one of your favorite celebrities or somebody you wanted to meet really bad, you got to have a meal with them. You got to invite them over and they accepted the invitation and they were gonna show up and you were gonna bring all your friends over and so you were having this great party and you were having this conversation and, and everything was going great and then, and then that neighbor showed up. You guys know that neighbor? One that lives down the street, never mows their grass. When they're out, you kind of bring your kids back in. You're like, hey, I don't know, you know, like we like them. I don't know, we don't know who that person is. So when they, when they come out, let's come inside. You guys know, know that neighbor? Maybe for you it's not a neighbor. Maybe for you it's the uncle or the brother or the sister or something like that. But anyway, we've all got these people and then that imagine you've got this party and the celebrity is there and then this uninvited guest shows up and they start kissing on their feet and crying and pouring perfume. I mean, you would be sitting there and you probably would be shocked and a little bit embarrassed like Simon was. And Simon was shocked and embarrassed that this woman had come in and that she was treating Jesus this way. And part of the reason that she was shocked and embarrassed, or that he was shocked and embarrassed, is because Simon was an insider. Simon was was the professional. He was living in the bubble, and this woman was an outsider, and he could not believe that Jesus was allowing this outsider to treat him this way. He couldn't believe that Jesus was interacting with the outsider in this way, because Simon was a good Pharisee. He drew lines. He said, I'm not going to go that far. We wouldn't be around sinners this way, because Simon had lost sight of the breadth of God's love, and Jesus had never lost sight of that. Jesus knew Being God, he knew that he came not just to love certain ones, but to love everyone. Because God loves everyone, he doesn't love just certain ones. And Simon had lost sight of that. Simon had lost sight of that, and he, his heart had grown cold because he forgot that God loves everyone, not just certain ones. And so the first reminder for us, if our hearts are cold like Simon's, 
towards outsiders, the first reminder for us that we need is this, is that we need to be reminded of the breadth of God's love. We need to be reminded that God loves everyone, not just certain ones. And I can't think of really a time in our history that, that needs this message more than maybe right now. I mean, if you think about our culture right now, there is more divisiveness and outrage in our culture right now than any other time I can remember living in or any other time that I can remember reading about. Nowadays, everybody is drawing lines and going, here's what I believe, and if you believe something different, you're wrong. And if you believe something different, you're not just wrong, I'm outraged and I'm mad that you don't believe what I believe. And so there's all this divisiveness and I'm mad that you believe something different and I think I'm better than you. There's all this divisiveness out there right now. In fact, Slate.com, this online magazine, in 2014, they declared, 2014, four years ago, they declared it to be the year of outrage. Because what they had noticed through 2014, they had noticed all of this kind of bubbling up in the culture that everybody had something that they were angry about. And everybody felt so justified and righteous in their anger. And people were drawing lines and going, here's who I am. And, and if you're different than that, then I'm better than you. And you can't tell me that I can't do this. And, and everybody was outraged and everybody was mad. And so if you go out to their website and you look, it's still up there. You would see this kind of image. This is what it would look like. And all of those little boxes represent one day in that year. And you can go, it's, a, it's an amazing time waste if you're looking just to, to waste some time. Amazing time waste. Just go out there and start clicking on those things and reading what were people outraged about that day. And so, for instance, if you went to March 2nd, you would click on it and this little screen would pop up and it would remind you that everybody was frustrated that John Travolta mispronounced somebody's name at the Oscars. <laughs> and that's what everybody was so mad about. And I can't believe how insensitive he was and I can't believe he didn't prepare. Then you go and you... Click on September 27th and you'll realize that that day everybody was outraged because the new iPhone 6 Plus, if you put it in your pocket and you sat down, sometimes it would bend. Some of you in this room are probably still mad about that because it happened to you. So the lines were being drawn. I'm a Samsung person. I'm an Apple. They're gonna fix it, whatever. And then you go and you get on November 6th and you'll realize that everybody was outraged that day because a mom found mold in a Capri Sun that she gave to her child and everybody was freaking out over that and if you go through and you'll read and there's some other ones where you'll be like hey that day everybody was outraged because some celebrity said this and every day or that day everybody was upset because Obama said this or Obama didn't say that or this politician said this or this politician didn't say that and you read through it though and I bet you'll have the same feeling that I had as I go through and look at this four years later I'm like you know what most of the stuff we were outraged by it's petty it's silly Things have not gotten better in the last four years. Things have gotten worse. Imagine what it would look like today in 2018. Imagine all the things that would be in those little squares now. Imagine all the things that we get outraged by nowadays. I mean, imagine all the political things, right? The, the, the Republicans said this, or Trump said that, or the Republicans didn't say that, or the Democrats said this, and here's what I believe about immigration, and there's what you believe about immigration, and this with gay rights, and that with gay rights, and all of the things. I mean, there are some really serious things where people are drawing lines, and we're saying, here's who I am, and if you're different, I'm better than you, and we can't get along, and I'm outraged that you believe something different, and it has not gotten any better. There is more divisiveness and outrage in our culture now than just about any other time. And you may be sitting there going, hey, listen, Adam, I'm, those things don't outrage me. I get it that people have different worldviews. I'm more tolerant of that kind of stuff. I don't draw lines. I don't think I'm better than anybody else. And I'm just going, I, I think you do. Because it doesn't have to just be serious things. I mean, we do it with silly things too. Think about your office. 
right? Like our department, we're better than the other departments. We're sales, we drive sales, we're better than accounting, they only count stuff. <laughs> right, you do it in your offices, you do it with your hobbies, right? I'm a golfer and I'm not a tennis player. You wanna, you wanna see some outrage and divisiveness when it comes to hobbies? Wake up early one Saturday morning, go down to White Rock Lake and watch the cyclists and runners. They have drawn lines, right? The, the, the runners, they know who's on the inside, they know who's in their bubble, and they think they're better than the cyclists, and they're like, we're better, and we have these cool shoes, and we don't have to wear a helmet for when we fall down, we don't die, right? And the cyclists are like, whatever, we're better, we'll go faster, we wear tights. <laughs> and they're just fighting all the time down there. We do this with our hobbies, and I, I would like to sit up here and go, you know, I'm, I'm above all of that, I'm a professional Christian, I don't judge, I don't think I'm better than anybody, my heart doesn't do that, and then I was just reminded, my wife and I, uh, this year, we decided to bless our boys, and we decided to buy uh, season passes to Six Flags, and we go, and we ride rides, and we stand in the lines, and I sit in those lines, and to my great shame, I realize that I do this too. I sit in the lines, and I'm just, I just, I'm going, man, if they, I can't believe, like if that person followed Jesus, they wouldn't talk that way. If that person followed Jesus, I can't believe they would dress that way. I can't believe that they would get that tattoo. And, and I just sit there and I just find that I'm just, sometimes I think I'm better. I'm just judging people. There's just this divisiveness and this outrage that is out there. And Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the fact that Jesus died for our sins means this. It means that we no longer have to draw lines. In fact, I'll go so far as to say this. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, it is incompatible with the gospel to have enemies. If there's any group of people that you think don't deserve your love, if there's any group of people that you willfully are not showing love to, what that means is that, that you really don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the Christian worldview is the only worldview that has a viable solution to the divisiveness and the outrage that's in our culture right now. Because the Christian worldview is the only worldview that has a savior that died for his enemies and prayed for their forgiveness. The solution to all the divisiveness, and I think I'm better than you, or I think because we're different, we can't be friends, the, the, the solution to that is Jesus, who died for enemies and prayed for their forgiveness. And so if we claim to follow Jesus and we've got people that we're willfully, we think we're better than, or we've got people that we're willfully holding our love from, at best, if we claim to be followers of Jesus and that's us, at best we're confused and we need this reminder. At worst, we really aren't following Jesus at all. So if our hearts are cold towards outsiders, like Simon's heart was cold towards outsiders, then we need to be reminded of the breadth of God's love. The story keeps going. Let's jump back in. So Simon had these thoughts, like if this man were a prophet, if he were somebody of God, and Jesus is about to scoreboard him a little bit. I love this section of this story because Jesus is about to show you, hey, I'm not just a prophet. I'm God. You wanna know why? Because I, I know what you were just thinking. I, I've read your thoughts, Simon, and so here's where we go, verse 40. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And now Jesus tells the story. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One of them owed 500 denarii. A denarii is basically just a day's wage. So somebody owed a little over a year, almost two years wages. And the other owed 50 denarii. So owed maybe about two months worth of wages. Neither of them, both of these people were in debt. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. 
So he, the debtor, forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. And now, now it gets good. So now he, he's got Simon's attention and all those other people that were sitting around that blanket or that table were probably watching. And now Jesus is really gonna go after Simon. He says, look at this. He says in verse 44, then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So Jesus is making it very clear what he's doing right now. He is comparing Simon and this woman. He's saying, hey, you're shocked by the way this woman is treating me and you're shocked that I'm interacting with her in this way. Let me tell you exactly why this woman is treating me this way because her heart is not cold like yours, Simon. Because she understands she's been given a gift. She understands that she had a debt that she could not pay, and she understands that I forgave that debt. All these actions, her, her emotion towards me, her, her wiping of my feet, her anointing my feet, that's not anything that she's done to earn my love. That's evidence that she knows she's been forgiven. That is a response to my love. She knows she's been given a gift, and it's producing this in her. You don't think you've been given a gift. You think you've earned something, so it's producing this response in you. So if our hearts are cold towards outsiders, we need to remember the breadth of God's love. And the second thing that we need to be reminded of is we need to be reminded of the depth of our sin. Simon didn't think he needed to be forgiven much. And so he wasn't loving much. This woman knew that she needed to be forgiven much. And so she was loving much. And we all can identify with this. I mean, we know that there's a different emotional reaction that you feel to a gift that you've been given versus uh, something that you feel like you've earned. There's a different emotional reaction to that. My wife and I saw this again in our family recently around the dinner time, around dinner and desserts. And so my wife and I, we have just a huge sweet tooth. We would eat dessert after every meal if we could because we are Americans and uh, because we have survived the great bluebell crisis of 2015. And so we... (laughs) We never want to go experience that again. And so we'll go through these seasons where we're more disciplined with dessert and less disciplined with dessert. And so we had just come off a season where we were being more disciplined with dessert and we were going into a season where we were like, who cares? Let's just eat it after every meal. And so uh, I remember when the season had started and we'd finish up dinner and we'd give the boys some dessert and they were so excited. They're like, I can't believe it. We get cookies tonight or I can't believe we get ice cream tonight. It's a Tuesday. We didn't even, we did nothing to deserve this. And they were just so grateful. And then after a few weeks, their hearts started to change a little bit. And they were like, oh, like what's for dessert tonight? You know, and uh, we'd give it to them and there were no thank yous. They would just kind of wolf it down and maybe ask for more and we'd say no. And then their hearts had kind of drifted a little bit more a couple weeks later where now it, the dessert had become this negotiating tool. So we'd put the dinner down in front of them and they were like, okra, what's for dessert tonight? I wanna see how this transaction's gonna go. 
right? So Oreo, like how many Oreos do I get? Four? All right, how about five? I'll eat all of those if I get five Oreos. And, and like we, we played into this. We're like, okay. And we negotiated with them and felt like they could earn it. And then, uh, you know, a couple days go by and my wife and I are like, man, I just don't, this just doesn't feel fun anymore giving them this. And I remember sitting in a meeting with Todd Wagner. If you're new here, Todd's a senior pastor here at Watermark, sitting in a meeting with him. And I don't even remember what the context was, but Todd did something that he does so well. He just puts these pithy statements out there that are like mind-blowing. And he did this in one of these meetings where he said something to the effect of like, you can't give to people what they've already taken from you. You can't give to people what they've already taken from you. And I remember hearing that and I was like, that is amazing. And that's what's going on in my house right now. I can't give dessert to my kids anymore because they've already taken it. They feel like they deserve it. They feel like they've earned it. We ate that food. Give us the, the ice cream. And so I went home and told Jackie, I was like, Todd said something amazing and we need to apply it. You know what's going on is because they've already taken it and they feel like they've earned it. So tonight, no dessert. And she was like, okay. So we got ready for dinner and I put on a bunch of catcher's gear, you know. <laughs> Sit down at the table and they go through their dinner and then they're like, what's for dessert? I was like, yeah, speaking of dessert, guess what? There's none tonight. And it was that moment that I'm sure you can imagine, like the forks drop and the third grader is like, hold on. Like I ate, I've earned, what do you mean? You know, and he starts laying into us. The first grader, kind of out of the corner of my eye, I'm certain his head spun completely around one time. <laughs> and they had this reaction and we just talked them through it. And now we're in a good season now where we, hey, you guys were getting entitled. You don't deserve it. It's something that we give to you and now we're in a good season and hopefully we'll stay here for a while. But I can't blame my boys for that. I mean, we know that's true. We know this happens. There is a different emotional reaction when you feel like you have earned something versus when you've been given something. You feel different when you are given a gift on your birthday than when you get a paycheck on Friday. That feels different because one you earned and the other you didn't earn at all. It was a gift that was given to you. And so if our hearts have grown cold, then we just need to remember the depth of our sin. And the way we do that is we constantly remind ourselves over and over and over again, as often as we can, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope we remind you of that every weekend here at Watermark. We cannot remind ourselves one another, we cannot remind ourselves enough of the fact that if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we did nothing to earn that. That's not because we're good. We too had a debt. Our sin created a separation between us and God, and this debt was far more than a year's worth of wages. This debt could not be paid back, and God loved us so much that he sent Jesus as payment for that debt. He died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again, and now we know it's true. It's true that he took our payment on our behalf and now we are forgiven and when we understand that our salvation was not something that was earned by us but it was something that was offered to us when we understand that it's a gift it should be producing this emotional reaction in us that is very similar to this woman's just go I cannot believe we've been given this but if we think we've earned it if we think we've earned it then we're not going to have the emotional reaction like hers we're going to have a cold heart like Simon's. And so what we need to do is we need to remember the gospel as often as we can and we need to remind ourselves of the depth of our own sin. And the, the way we do that is we spend as much time as we possibly can with Jesus Christ. I don't know if you guys have noticed this. I've noticed this in my life. I've been walking with Jesus for almost 22 years and by the grace of God, I've been able to have older men 
in my life, all, throughout all those 22 years that have been discipling me and encouraging me and teaching me God's word. And the one thing that I've noticed that is similar with the people that are older than me that are still following after Jesus and they're still in the game is they talk about their sin in a way that I don't talk about my sin. The more they've been walking with Jesus, they still talk about their sin as like, I cannot believe how much I still need to let Jesus rule and reign in my life. And I'm sitting there and I'm kind of surprised by that because I compare my life to their life and I'm like, I bet you don't think what I think. I bet you don't say what I say. I bet you're not tempted by what I'm tempted by. I compare myself to them and I think there's a lot less sin in their life compared to mine. But what they've done is because they're consistently spending time with Jesus, they're not comparing themselves to their friends. They're not comparing themselves to their community group or to the culture. They're comparing themselves to Christ, to perfection. And the more time they spend with Jesus, the softer their hearts remain and they still understand that they have been given a gift because there's a depth of their sin that still remains front and center in their life. And their hearts are warm. They're more like the woman than they are like Simon. And so if our hearts have grown cold, we need to remember we need to remember the breadth of God's love and we need to remember the depth of our sin. You guys know, have probably heard this old quote, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. That's a great quote. We need to remember that it's not this. Christianity, Christianity is not one beggar telling another beggar, I worked for this bread and you need to work for it too. That's not what it is. When you understand that we've been forgiven, it, produces something in us. So we need to remember the breadth of his love and we need to remember the depth of our sin and let's see how this wraps up. So this whole interaction went down and now Jesus looks to the woman and here's what he says in verse 48. He says, then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, like who is this that even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, Jesus had most likely had an interaction with this woman before. He really wasn't telling her anything new, and he wasn't saying, hey, because you came in here and behaved this way, now your sins are forgiven, you just earned it. What he was doing is he was giving her another gift, and the gift that he was giving her here in this interaction is he was giving her the gift of saying, hey, I'm gonna declare your new identity to you in front of all of these religious do-gooders. Because they all know your reputation. You're the sinful woman. You're the one who's uneducated and poor and you're out there and they know you as a sinner. And what I'm telling you, I'm reminding you in front of them is you are a new person. Your sins have been forgiven. You now get to go in peace. You now have a new mission in life. You don't have to go around and do what you were currently doing. Now you have a new job description. You get to now go in peace. So now, because you have peace with God, you now can go tell others that they too can have peace with God. And so the third reminder that I want to have for us, if our hearts have grown cold towards outsiders, is the breadth of God's love, the depth of our sin. And the third one is this, is that we need to be reminded that it is our privilege too, our privilege to go in peace. It's our privilege. And to go in peace is to remember that you now have peace with God because of Jesus, and to go in peace is to live out Matthew 5, 9, the blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, is to live out 2 Corinthians 5, 18, that we now have the ministry of reconciliation. To go in peace means now you and I have the opportunity to go tell other people that they too can be forgiven. It's our opportunity. It is not our obligation. We get to do this stuff now. We don't have to do this. 
And as I've been thinking about this last point over the past few weeks, I've just had this overwhelming thought that keeps coming back into my mind. And the thought is this, is that one of the worst words in the English language is the word should. Should creates this idea of uh, obligation and discipline and willpower and stuff that's not fun. Should is like the kale of the English language. Like it doesn't matter if you eat it raw or in a salad with dressing or put it in a smoothie or fry it and try to call it a chip. No matter what you do, it's disgusting because it's kale. And the word should is the exact same way. It doesn't matter how you try to sugarcoat it or what you try to do with it. It still brings about this idea of obligation and have to and falling short and never good enough. And Jesus Christ set us free from a lot of things. And one of the things that he set us free from is he set us free from the word should, amen? Hear this, you don't have to do anything. If Jesus Christ, you believe that Jesus died for you, believe that he died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again, then you don't have to do anything. You don't have to come to church, you don't have to be in a community group, you don't have to uh, commune with other believers, you don't have to share your gospel, you don't have to give your money away. You don't have to do anything because you don't earn this relationship with Jesus. But watch this, as followers of Jesus Christ, you don't have to, you get to. You get to do all of that. You get to come to church and be reminded of God's great love. You get to commune with other believers. You get to share the resources that he's entrusted to you. You get to do all of this stuff. Life is not about have to. Life is about now we get to do all of that. It's not about an obligation. It's about the opportunity that we have now because we've been set free. It's amazing. And so if our hearts have grown cold, if our hearts have grown cold and we need to remember the breadth of God's love, we need to remember the depth of our sin and the gift that we've been given, and we need to remember that it is our privilege to now live this mission, this mission. we now have this opportunity to go and live as a peacemaker. So I'll close with this one last illustration as I was trying to think of somebody that I know that lives out these principles so well and one person immediately came to mind. It's a person that I know that I'm sure many of you in this room know. It's my friend John Elmore. John Elmore serves on staff here. He leads the region, regeneration ministry, he leads our community ministry now. I admire so much about John Elmore. And one of the things that I admire about John is he is one of those guys that treats everybody the exact same. Have you ever met people like that? It doesn't matter if he is talking to somebody completely different than him or somebody really similar than him. Just everybody, he treats everyone the exact same same way. And I admire that so much about John. John lives the get-to life. He doesn't live a have-to kind of life. And I've heard stories about the way, and I've watched him uh, and the way he interacts with people, the way he interacts with his neighbors, and I've watched him at restaurants, and I've watched him at coffee shops, and I've seen the way he interacts, and I just, I admire it. He lives all of this stuff out. And so the other day, I was recording a podcast, John McGee and I were recording a podcast with John Elmore. And so uh, we're in the podcast studio, and he comes in, and he's just beaming. He's just got this smile on his face, and we're like, what's going on? He's like, you are not gonna believe what just happened. We're like, well, what just happened? Tell us. He goes, you know those phone calls? Have you ever gotten one of those phone calls where they tell you they're from the FBI, and they have all these allegations against you, and that if you don't call them back, like the cops are gonna come and take you away? Have you ever gotten those? And McGee and I are kind of like, yeah, I mean, we've heard about those. He goes, I got one of those calls, and I called him back. And I was like, of course you did, John. That's what you do, right? And that's amazing. And he goes, and and I recorded the phone call. 
and it's 30 minutes, and he gave me the recording, and I listened to it, and it's just like, it's an amazing phone call. And he recorded it, truth be told, he'll say he recorded it because he thought, hey, maybe in here there's gonna be a good illustration that I can use at Regen one day about how sin tries to rip you off like these people are trying to rip you off. And so the conversation started off where he gave him his name, and then the guy on the phone was like, can I please have your zip code? And John's like, I'm not comfortable giving you my zip code. Can you tell me these allegations? I'm really scared that the cops are gonna come get me. And the guy's like, well, give me your zip code. And he's like, no, I don't wanna give you that. I mean, is it, is it the drinking and driving that I've done? <laughs> the guy's like, no, it's not the drinking and driving that you've done. Will you give me your zip code? And John's like, no, I'm not gonna give you my zip code. Uh, is it the strip clubs I've been to? And the guy's like getting a little flustered. He's like, no, it's not, not that. Uh, will you just give me your zip code and I'll tell you the allegations? And John's like, I'm not gonna do that. Is it the breaking and entering that I've done? <laughs> And the guy's like, no, it's not the breaking and entering, and he just give me your zip code, and John's like, I'm not comfortable getting you the zip code. Well, now the guy wants to get off the phone. <laughs> He's like, I'm, all right, I, I'm done. I wanna get off the phone. And John's like, that's fine, you can get off the phone, but I just wanna tell you one thing. I wanna tell you this, that, that what you're doing is evil. You are trying to rip people off and that is not okay and you are gonna face judgment one day. All those things that I've told you about drinking and driving and strip clubs and breaking and entering, I've done all of those. I was an evil man. I was a wretch, my life was lost, and then I found Jesus Christ. And you sound like you're lost right now, and you need to repent of what you're doing, and you need to come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I've been forgiven, and you can be forgiven too. And he shares the gospel with this guy, and he asks the guy, he says, hey, have you ever heard this story before? And the guy says, yeah, I'm a Christian. And the whole phone call changed. Come to find out that this guy lives in northern India, and some missionaries from America had come over into his town and shared the gospel with him and he had become a Christian, his brother had become a Christian and his father had become a Christian and he had just, his heart had drifted and he was looking for work and this was a job and he knew, he felt some tension with it but he just didn't know what else to do and John for the next 20 minutes was just sharing scripture with this guy, encouraging him to try to find a new job and at the end of the phone call, the guy was like, I feel like crying right now, will you please pray for me? These two brothers on opposite sides of the world. <laughs> opposite sides of the world and he prayed for his brother and encouraged him and he's telling this story and I'm like, John, of course this happens to you. <laughs> of course. Because John lives a get-to kind of life. He understands that God loves everyone and not just certain ones. He understands the breadth of God's love and that keeps his heart warm towards those who are far from God. John fully understands, if you spend any time with him, he will tell you he understands he's been forgiven a debt that he could not pay back and that keeps his heart warm towards outsiders and John understands that he is under no obligation to do any of it. He doesn't have to do any of it, he gets to. And John's life is full of, I cannot believe that just kind of happened moments. It's anything but the boring life that's found in the bubble for so many of us. You know what Dallas needs? Dallas needs more John Elmore's. Dallas needs more people like this woman that understand the breadth, understand the depth, and understand the privilege. So let me pray that we will be people like that. And so God, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that we can be forgiven of our sins. We thank you that we are not without hope. We thank you, God, that you are not a God who draws lines, that you have extended your love to us, wretched sinners, where our hearts drift and we thank you, God, that you have uh, paid our debts that we could not pay. 
And we thank you, God, that now our life has meaning, that we don't have to live this boring life, that we can live a life as a peacemaker, telling others that they, too, can have peace with you. And so we just say thank you for all of that. Will you please, God, help us to repent of our cold hearts. And may we see others the way that this woman saw others, the way Jesus saw others, the way our friend John sees others. May we live like that. And we ask this in Jesus' name.